Welcome back to Significant Lots in our year-end extravaganza. We're excited to hand out tons of awards here at Significant Lots for our favorite collectors, our favorite stories, maybe even our least favorite stories from our resident curmudgeon of the year. Before that, there's one final story we wanted to talk about. We meant to talk about it last week, but we forgot. There was this great story over in the LA. It's more Times like we ran that. out of time, Tony. Not that we forgot. <laughs> <laughs> there's, so, there's just so many things to get to in the watch world these days that we yeah. totally, totally didn't have time. But there was this great story in the LA Times about J.P. Morgan's lost pocket watch. So back in the early 1900s, J.P. Morgan commissioned a pocket watch from a British watchmaker, J. Player and Sons. It cost about $5,000 at the time, took about four years to make, and an LA Times reporter got curious about it and went searching for it because since the 1970s, the watch basically hasn't been seen. It was sold by an antiquarian or an antique dealer around then and hasn't turned up since. So long story short, the LA Times reporter did some digging, finally found the last dealer who had sold it in the 1970s, who assured them that it's, it's happy and safe in a private collection after last being sold. The reporter also found a descendant of the player family who had been searching for the watch as well. So it was cool that a descendant of the family seemed to be aware of the British watchmaking history that his family is a part of and had been doing similar work to try to find the watch and make sure that his family's legacy lived on. So we wanted to give a shout out first to the reporter for bringing that great story, but it got us thinking about some of the great missing watches of history. There's a great Hodinkee article from probably a handful of years ago that talks about some of the missing watches of history. Some of them have been found since, which is really cool. So it's cool to see how history evolves and people are able to seek out these watches. But we're going to send it to our, our resident treasure hunter first. That's Eric, obviously. Number one, <laughs> Eric, did you know much about the history of this JP Morgan pocket watch? Are you going to be searching for it now? And besides the JP Morgan pocket watch, of course, what is your favorite missing watch that you would love to find? We'll start with the first question. I was not familiar with this watch. Of course, was familiar with JP Morgan's collection. Probably the Holy Grail watch book is the book that is JP Morgan's collection. Uh, we sold a copy when I was at Christie's, I want to say for $35,000 or something like that. And they come up very rarely and occasionally. It's probably the only book you would find in a watch auction, like a Keynote, uh, Christie's, Phillips, or Sotheby's watch auction. You know, no other book would, would necessarily go at auction like that. Uh, that's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of work. It, it focuses a lot on it doesn't have 20th century watches in it. The book's from 1912. Uh, it focuses on, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th, and uh, 19th century pieces, a lot of enamels. And there was sort of no expense spared for that book uh, in terms of the artwork page to page with the reproductions, painted reproductions of these enamel pocket watches. So it's a beautiful piece of work. It's not as relevant to my business, which is obviously primarily wristwatches and primarily 20th century wristwatches and some pocket watches thrown in. But I certainly appreciate the art and craftsmanship of it. And certainly that field of the last several centuries, the expertise for the people that really know those things is kind of dying out and leaving the auction world. And we're not really seeing those types of pieces at auction you know, if I can name check a couple people, Richard Chadwick, 
who's a consultant with Christie's. Uh, he is a phenomenal expert in these. Sabine Kegel of Christie's Geneva, Mary Lee, uh, Christie's Hong Kong. Those are kind of the people that I, I look up to. Doug Escribano as well knows a lot about these. We work together at Christie's and he's now at Phillips, New York. So um, that's the first thing. I absolutely love the story. Daniel Miller uh, is a friend of mine. I did, had no idea he was working on it until he sent me the link that it came out. It's a little bit unfortunate. It's behind a paywall. It's 2,670 words uh, and it's a phenomenal journey that is quite gripping once you start to <laughs> figure out where this watch might be and where this journey took him. So I uh, wanted to definitely give a great name check to Daniel Miller for doing this and to the LA Times for publishing something like this. This is not something you see in a typical newspaper. <laughs> uh, not even something you see on a watch blog with this sort of depth. I really loved it. In terms of... Uh, Missing watches, um, you know, family lore has it that our family is related to Buzz Aldrin, uh, kind of on the Swedish-American side of my mom. So finding his Speedmaster, uh, not something that you could uh, you could own, but returning it to the U.S. government so it could be placed in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum would be a great triumph in life and certainly wonder where that watch is today. Uh, Omega has the serial number of the watch that's on the movement at various times. People have claimed they've had it over the years and made postings on Omega forums and things like that. But the serial never number on the movement never lines up. They don't publish the serial number probably for good reason, because someone could alter the number, you know, to, <laughs> to make it appear like it's that number. Um, but it could just be, circulating out there in someone's drawer it could be in a dump somewhere who knows uh speaking of dumps there was a good new yorker article about a guy who has several billion dollars in bitcoin on a something like half a billion in bitcoin that's in a dump <laughs> and i have a friend who has probably 50 million in bitcoin that's stuck on a server in a dump in ohio uh <laughs> that no one can find <laughs> so uh Unfortunately, that is the dark side of the cryptocurrency world, but um, one of many dark sides, perhaps. But uh, that is the uh, that's the scenario. What do you think, Charlie? I think losing uh, fifty million dollars in Bitcoin would be much more at the high priority of me finding it than uh, J.P. Morgan's and all the other missing watches. I'd be be pretty sad. What was it? Fifty billion or fifty million? This well, the I think the New Yorker article was about five hundred million, roughly lost. Oh my um, goodness! And uh, I have a friend who lost about fifty million. Uh, oh nice God, story. that's uh, that's stressing me out just thinking about it. I don't <laughs> like it. Yeah, but um, what watch for you, Charlie? Uh, would you want to find? Well, I don't know if I'll find it. I mean, the, fir the first one that kind of came to mind, I'm not sure if this really classifies as missing or maybe more so it remains to have been surfaced publicly. But I guess the the one that I think of right out the bat would be John Lennon's Patek Philippe 2499. He received that one on his 40th birthday, presumably from Yoko Ono. I think he was assassinated just weeks subsequently um, in New York. I think there's 
what, maybe two photos of him actually wearing this watch, which most of us have probably seen, but I'd imagine that that watch would be, you know, the highest selling Patek Philippe of all time if it were to surface in, in, in the right circumstances. What do you think? What do you think yeah. about that, Eric? Am I, am I dead wrong on that guesstimation or not? No, I mean, I think um, that's a watch, vintage wristwatch that could theoretically surpass Paul Newman's Paul Newman 6239. I've held the watch. It was a remarkable moment in my life. Uh, one of those, probably the most special watches I've ever held. Um, very few people have seen it. It is uh, signed Tiffany & Co. on the dial, which uh, people don't know. <laughs> and it does have an engraving on the back that is from Yoko to him. Uh, and the condition is pretty much like new on the original brown strap. He he wore with kind of where, you know, how those pin buckles can kind of stretch the, the hole basically from wearing it. It stretched exactly where he wore it. So, you know, kind of seeing that is really an emotional moment, to be honest. Uh, and I think... Um, I expect we'll see it for sale at some point publicly in in the coming years or decades, and that could be, you know, a really really special thing to see. No question. I mean, it's it's arguably the Patek Philippe reference twenty four ninety nine. It's what they're known for: perpetual calendar chronograph, and it's Tiffany, and it's insane condition, and it's John Lennon. You know, it. <laughs> I guess the only the only thing more would be if it had the original box and papers. And that watch really, I mean, you would imagine that that one, you wouldn't have to generate a lot of, of buzz around it just because of the Beatle maniacs and everything. I mean, the press would be, it would, it would surpass everything that we've ever seen in terms of people actually tuning in to see what this watch is. And it wouldn't necessarily just be watch enthusiasts that are like in the game trying to buy this watch from it. It would be... You know, people who are much more obsessed with maybe even the Beatles memorabilia, et cetera. It, yeah, no expense. It would it would transcend the world of watches, kind of like Paul Newman's Paul Newman did. And it'd be great for the world of watches, certainly be great for Patek Philippe as well. Not that they need much help these days. They're doing perfectly fine. But uh but it would be really great for watches and great for vintage watches too. Can I can I deviate the uh, the subject just for one question regarding you know what is it that obviously John Lennon is is a huge figure likewise you know other Beatle other Beatle member, members right but w would you see that sort of performance in any of the other members or is it just more so about him that you think that that would be the the watch that would gain the most attention because what what was um. Ringo Starr's watches have have they come up to auction or yeah there was Paul McCartney's I'm was, sure have yeah it's Ringo had a thirty four forty eight uh, which sold not that well at auction a few years back and then our friend Nick Gould Nicoloy on Instagram found a lot of great photos from him, of him wearing it in the seventies you know that was pretty neat uh, some of my favorite Instagram posts he posted this year particularly because yeah. Ringo's a drummer. I'm a drummer. I thought that was just super cool. But, um, you know, that, those guys, they, obviously Paul has his Aquanaut. 
um, that's very well known and beloved, but it's not quite the same thing. You know, it's uh, Lenin, given that he was assassinated and it was one of the, the worst moments of the 1980s was, um, you know, something that I think you know, people would feel a deeper connection to. And certainly on a horological level, it was it's a really more important and special watch. Yeah, and then I guess the other two ones that are a little bit more uh, pertinent to the actual missing element of the question is there's an interesting Graves Jr. video that is on Collectability's YouTube page called The Untold Story of Patek Philippe Henry Graves Jr. Mystery Box. Um, it's about a complicated watch that doesn't necessarily align with the uh, super complication, but the boxes that he ended up um, having for his watches, these were all stuff that co- that accompanied his complicated uh, commissions from Paddock. So that's kind of an interesting one that I felt was, you know, relevant to throw in there and maybe even like Hans Keller's uh, nautical cricket. And that's something that you haven't really seen a lot of people talk about. So there's my, uh, my, my throwing out there of the subject that hopefully people won't ever pursue. <laughs> Eric, I've talked to him about it. I've emailed him. Uh, he doesn't know where it is, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, but yeah, that box was phenomenal. The box and papers that was sold at Sotheby's for the Henry Graves Jr. Uh, miss, missing super complication watch um, went for about $40,000 back in 2012, I believe. And uh, was a, you know, it's... <laughs> It was a crazy thing. I know the guy who purchased the box and papers, but he thought, well, if this shows up, it's going to be worth several hundred thousand dollars to the person that that has the watch. <laughs> so because you will want to put the set together, uh, but it's uh, kind of insane. Um, <laughs> It'd be funny if, if uh, we see uh, John Reardon get caught on the uh, Eagle Island scuba diving looking for the watch at the bottom of the <laughs> yeah, water yeah. digging up holes on there or something like that. Yeah. It's one of those things. I mean, Pete apparently told John, you will never find this watch. So, uh, that kind of solves the mystery of <laughs> if we'll find it, we don't know if it was thrown into a fire or the, you would think that it, <laughs> it could have been physically taken apart. Uh, something like that. Yeah, total mystery. And maybe there's, maybe it's cursed, and that's why it was disposed of. Or maybe it's hidden in a sock drawer. Who knows? Kind of like the super complication itself. The joke that it was cursed. That you know, all the <laughs> owners died. The sale of it right before, you know, day or two before at Sotheby's. I'll never forget in 2014, <laughs> the guy dies right before it's coming up for auction. Um, just insane. But uh, the owner, but it's it's wild, really is, and and that is a very like eye opening moment in Stacy Perman's book, uh, a grand complication. He was kind of so upset with it, he nearly threw it into the lake, and felt like it was a curse. Henry Graves Jr. <laughs> the super complication watch. Uh, it's pretty pretty nuts and it's also the tie back to daniel miller's watch about the j player and sons piece that put the company out of business building that watch because they spent 
so much time and effort and resources on it. And although it was a thousand pounds, that was not nearly enough to pay them for the years of work. And they went out of business basically one year after the watch was completed. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes having the most complicated watch, um, is not really uh, a benefit. I know Vacheron with their 57260 watch, the most complicated, you know, watch ever made. Um, apparently it took a team of seven people several years to build that watch. So think about the, <laughs> the, the salaries and associated costs. Um, it, it was not a cheap endeavor. Gabe, what about you? What's your uh, what's your watch that you'd like to see surface, or that you're actively hunting for the uh, person who owns it? Uh, there are two that I think are really interesting. One is the whatever the prototype Rolex that they sent to NASA for testing. Uh, I think that would be kind of a cool find, just you know, super cool. Uh, and the other one that I that you know total realm of uh, impossible to ever get but apparently there's a unique uh execution of a 1518 that nobody's seen i don't know if it exists i, th I think it might be a platinum one but that that always piqued my interest i, I love the 1518 um, and so those are the two that i would love to see come up um you know, and also, you know, the prototype uh, Speedmaster or whatever that they sent to NASA would also be cool to see. But uh, those are my uh, my interesting watches that I think have been haven't come up yet, to my knowledge. Maybe Eric knows something I don't know about that. Yeah. I should write James Reagan about where those watches went. But basically, he wrote an RFP. Uh, James was in charge of equipment for the astronauts, and he wrote it in such a way that it was basically completely nondescript and he sent it out to all the watch companies, their North American offices, which were primarily in New York. He sent it to at least 15 companies or more. Little did they know this was for the watches to go, you know, <laughs> be used in the space program. Uh, this was during Gemini. So the two man uh, space capsules, but he uh, only four companies responded one was Hamilton, which missed the whole wrist-worn aspect, and they sent a pocket watch, basically, for testing. So he didn't even bother to test it. Uh, the other was Rolex, which sent supposedly a 6238 or 6034, just a standard off-the-shelf uh, model. Same for Omega. They sent a standard uh, Speedmaster, um, Ed White, and then... Um, and then the, the third was Longines Wittenauer, which sent a Wittenauer, not the one that we thought with the black dial with the decimal scale, um, supposedly just a, a white dial, kind of standard Wittenauer chronograph. So, um, you know, the, the Rolex didn't, basically what really benefited Omega for the whole design was that anti-magnetic cap basically has a small little dimple in the center that makes it extremely effective for absorbing shocks because the case only hits at that one point and it gets dispersed throughout the case. Whereas most watches have the, the movement screwed into the case by three screws. So during the shock tests, the movement takes a lot of jarring 
but Omega with that little dimple in the center really uh, disperses the impact of, of shocks and things. Uh, and obviously it survived the heat and cold tests as well, very well, but, um, it was just a better design, you know, for that sort of process. They never envisioned it would be used for that process, but when you make a great design, who knows what'll happen. Shout out to Hamilton. That would have been sweet to see a, uh, a pocket watch on a chain, just hanging out right next to the person's you know, cord, umbilical cord of, of, of life. Yeah. After the shuttle. That'd have been sweet. Uh, <laughs> James said, you know, the watch companies, for all they knew, the, the watches were going to be used by someone like Lang Cement. He wrote it in such a way that it was completely nondescript, like it could have been literally for someone jackhammering or, you know, driving a car around or something in Texas. But, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> Tony, what about you? What's the, what's the one uh, missing watch or several missing watches if you're going to take my uh, approach? I had one other historical one that I know it's been at auction before. It auctioned about 15, 20 years ago. I Googled it before this. The um, the Marilyn Monroe JFK gifted Rolex Day-Date. And I yeah. saw it auctioned back in 2005, 2006 for about 120000 To my knowledge, we haven't seen it since, but I think that's kind of a great historical artifact and just the story of you know Marilyn gifting it to JFK and um, on his birthday and him immediately handing it to an aide saying, get rid of this um is is kind of a great story i think a great historical artifact and i know eric you love presidential watches but yeah is that something that's known to be around i don't know where it is um and there was a lot of controversy about whether the story was true or not whether someone just made this up and got it engraved um i don't even i put it in my presidential watches article um but i said you know i think there's some some questions about it but um, it'd be interesting to see even whether the serial number lines up. I mean, the photo is very grainy online. You know, if we're talking about a nineteen late nineteen sixties day date serial number or something, we can we can dismiss it. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I'd be very curious to see the watch and do a little more digging into that history. You know, there's so many kind of memorabilia auctions, um, and I found a lot from my perspective are, are just trying to sell something and sell a story. They're not really like a, like a Christie Sotheby's where they're really researching the provenance and, and putting their name behind it. They're just trying to make a quick buck. So, um, you know, that I worry about that <laughs> with something like that. Well, a lot of these types of watches come not as much today, maybe, but they come up in auction houses that sort of quote unquote specialize in celebrity memorabilia and that yeah. type of stuff. So they're not yeah. even like watch authentic. Exactly. In the sense of the word. Right? They're not. And I've seen a lot of sketchy things over the years. Um, a story that I can't even share, I would say publicly because of other people sharing things with me. But, <laughs> but I've seen a lot of these memorabilia auctions sell completely fake story watches. And uh, it's, you know, a lot of people in that memorabilia world, to be honest, are, they make you feel dirty if you meet them. So <laughs> it's not good. Thanks for sharing that story with us, Eric. Um, you know, we're going to edit that one out of the uh, podcast that we're actually submitting. <laughs> no, you can leave so, it. was so great. You know? I, mean, I can't believe that. Oh, I can't say the name. Sorry. But yeah, I mean, if people knew, they would be... <laughs> 
they'd be paying to get into this uh, recording session. Right. Yeah, we'll put that behind the paywall. <laughs> exactly. Now it's time for the Significant Lots Year in Review. We're going to hand out some awards of our favorite stories, lots, watches, etc. of the year. You guys know GPHG, but this is this is even better, more prestigious. Our first annual Significant Lots Year in Review. So we're going to start with our favorite story of the year. Charlie, why don't you, as a journalist, as a blogger, as an influencer, what were some of your favorite stories of the year? You know, I have a few favorite stories of the year. One... Um being an article from uh, Nia on Revolution. It's uh, a respective on shaped watches. I got to kind of um, hear a little bit about her process of, of going, looking for all of these uniquely shaped watches. And she did a phenomenal job at kind of putting together a, a really good vis- visual and written presentation of like all of these, you know, kind of offbeat styles of, of wrist watches. And it's just a phenomenal read. Um, and then, you know, I think just a few months later, she had written a, a collected man article on the women behind Cartier and uh, Francesca uh, cartier Brickell was involved in kind of helping paint that story. So those were two really standout ones from Nia. And then um, also, you know, Tanya Edwards is uh, history on golden ellipse was that one, you know, wasn't necessarily the the watch that I was expecting. I would be you know fascinated by that that article. So that was another one that was on shaped watches that ended up uh, a standout. And then on top of that, you know, I think there's also the quarterly column by uh, Barbara Plumbo for revolution women. We love that one was a, a cool one to see the last two um, issues of revolution. Yeah. I think that's kind of a few of the ones I would recommend to check out. Eric, is there a favorite story or piece of news from the watch world this year of yours? Um, there's a few, uh, basically anything on rescatement.com. Uh, first of all, <laughs> uh, no, I really, really am uh, a big rescapement fan. <laughs> um, speaking of rescapement specifically, I liked uh, Charlie's Coin Watches article. Um, I think it became the reference guide for understanding coin watches, and you know, it's a simple formula for things going up in value. If there's research and scholarship out there, people want to understand, you know, people begin to understand it and then want to own it. And I don't know if that's uh, specifically why the Patek Philippe coin watch did so well at Phillips in New York uh, this month, but um, it certainly helped. So uh, Charlie's article on coin watches, you know, it's not the sexiest topic, like in a sense, but that's what it's why it's so good. Um, And I really liked Perth's article on subdial.co about the Lange one watches. That was great scholarship around the early made in Germany dials, MIG dials, as we say, um, and is already having impact several weeks later in the collector community. Um, a collected man has done some really wonderful articles um, throughout the year, you know, whether it's talking about some of the history of independent watches or things like you know, pink dials, the history of those, um, as people say, salmon, uh, but pink dials, really great articles on watches and movies. Uh, Andy Green wrote that. Um, Hodinkee, 
as you know, had a, a series of different cool articles, including in the magazine. Um, and, I, you know, there, I'd love to see kind of longer form reference points type articles. I know they're, they're working on more of those. Um, we haven't quite had those this year, but uh, they're, <clears throat> they're doing great work. John views. I enjoyed the count point count uh the point counterpoint article they just did with uh jack forster versus john views on vintage versus modern watches um so yeah i think uh we're in a golden age of of watch writing there's a lot more of it than ever um ming lu shout out to her she did some great articles for a number of different publications um including about cartier um and, uh, you know, I think we're, we're looking toward a strong 2022, you know, a collected man just did a great article that came out today on the data graph, which you can check out. Um, and Cole did one previously last year about the data graph, but it's, you know, those types of articles you can point to and, and really say is one of the reasons why data graph prices have gone up. Tony, what about your, uh, your favorite stories from the year? A lot of the ones that I had in my list have already been mentioned. I'll shout out a couple more from Hodinky. Cara Barrett wrote the All Watches Should Be Unisex article at the beginning of the year, which I thought was a fun one. Uh, started a lot of important discussions, I guess, in the industry or you know discussions that were already being had. But obviously, when Hodinky writes about something, just lending their platform to things is, is important. Um, the other one that they do that's not serious at all is that Complete Newbie series, uh, from Sarah Miller, I think is her name. So she went to the AP house recently in London. And, you know, it's fun to just read sort of a quote unquote newbies experience on going to the AP house and her experiences with luxury um, and all of that type of stuff. I think it's just a fun read. And I think, you know, to Eric's point, they haven't done as many reference points types of articles over there, but they have done some articles that kind of expand the pie, if you will, and getting new people interested in watches. Um, Dime Piece is obviously another one that's done the same thing, primarily on Instagram, of course, but she's had a few fun interviews on her site uh, with Isabella Proya, for example, a specialist at Phillips, which I thought was a fun one. Um, and then a lot of the more serious ones that I enjoyed, you guys have already mentioned, the Long One article, everything from a collected man. I will say as a, as a quote unquote journalist, a collected man does a great job of pushing you and giving you the space to research things in depth. Um, I did a dial finishing article and talked to a lot of people at, you know, I talked to Josh Shapiro. I talked to the people at Metallum that make dials for people like Philippe Dufour. And it's fun to be able to, to research things on a more in-depth level. And it's great that there's a publication that gives you the space to be able to do that. Um, so those are some of mine from the year. Gabe, what about you? I'm gonna play to my strength and say the uh, the Vianney Halter article from a collected man. Um, basically, they, they had a lot of really good independent article uh, articles about independence. For example, they had one that was "What is independent watchmaking?" which I thought also was is a, is a great topic of discussion because I think it's one of those um, one of those things that. It's kind of, you know, everybody has their own definition of it, but, uh, I liked the retrospective on, on Vianney Halter. It's, it, you know, one of the fathers of modern indie watchmaking. And I, I just, 
I like him as a person. I think he's he is interesting in terms of just beyond watchmaking, just the stuff that he collects that, you know, I remember he once told me that he had recently bought like a Soyuz capsule uh, window on eBay or something like that, you know, the, between that and his, you know, quirky tastes in cars and just his, his you know, his big church clocks that he collects. I, I think he's just a very interesting personality and it, comes through on in his pieces and it was nice to see uh, a retrospective on on him can i chime in actually i wanted to name check three last things one tony trainer's watch of the week uh on the max bill watches not just because he quoted me but it was the first time tony was in hodinky i think so that was that was great uh and of course charlie dunn's watch of the week on the volcano cricket I really like the watch of the week series, you know, it's, it's, um, ever since Odinki started it a couple months ago, I pretty much, when I see it come up, read it, you know, and, uh, from, from front to back. And I can't say that about a lot of watch articles from top to bottom. Uh, and, um, so I, I really enjoyed both of those. It's great for people to share, you know, what they're passionate about. And then last, uh, wanted to shout out Cam Wolf of GQ. Uh, he's on paternity leave right now, but he's done really excellent watch coverage for GQ the last couple of years. Uh, obviously, kind of with the celebrity bent, uh, which is perfect for their audience, but, you know, who's wearing what, but also just random things like an article on erotic watches, which no one really talks about, and you wouldn't expect to be written about in detail there. Um, so it's been great to see Cam talking about a whole variety of what's happening in the watch market, you know, reviewing auctions, being, you know, talking about all these different things and, uh, look forward to his return from paternity leave and congrats on the birth of baby wolf. Eric, I think you've been quoted in probably more than half of the watch of the week articles from me and Charlie and Gary Steingart about the 3940 as well. So yes, yes, that might be some of the reason you love them so much. Um, <laughs> but no, they are great. They are great articles. You're totally right. Obviously, that's great. It's my favorite Hodinkee series now. Yeah, mine too. I think I, to echo what Tony was saying earlier was the kind of pushing you to talk about things and expand upon stuff that you weren't necessarily submitting in your first draft. That was kind of something that Nick over at Hodinkee had kind of moved the needle on with my article. So it is it is fun to kind of push yourself out of those comfort zones. But I think the the watch of the week one that I really liked, I think was it, it was one of the first ones. But I think it was about uh, uh, I can't remember who the author was, but I think his father's Rolex had been stolen, and then he had traced back all of the security footage. Yeah, and Jeff Hilliard. Like, yeah. yeah, that was a great one, too. It was awesome. And Ben uh, wrote one on the Reverso, um, which I thought was excellent, Ben Clymer. Uh, it's, it's been a fun series. Uh, hopefully, they'll be doing more reference points. And, of course, every Talking Watches is a must-watch, and Ronnie Cheng is a friend, and I really enjoyed his uh, Talking Watches this year. Um, of course, it's great to have Brooke Shields and others. And then the 4-in-1 series has also been nice. Uh and we can stop talking about Hodinky now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he's Ronnie Chang's intro break now. This episode is brought to you by Hodinky. Um, 
Well, maybe that'll wrap it up for our favorite stories of the year. And we could talk about our favorite lots sold at auction this year. Gabe, we'll start with you on this one and snake back the other way, if that's all right. Uh, I have to say the 1518 Rose Rose. Um, it, it's always been my grail. I made a very feeble attempt at the one at uh, Phillips a couple of years ago. So it's it's been something – It's it's a combination that I, I think is – Probably my one watch collection, if possible, would probably be that. But aside from that, I liked the LM1 prototype. I, I like that independents are now releasing these things into the wild, and they're they're kind of allowing people to see and experience and own a piece of the evolution of them. And, you know, obviously there have been a lot of really early independents that have come up for sale this year, but I thought it was cool to see an Echo prototype come up for sale. Eric, what about you? Favorite lot at auction this year? There's a bunch, but um, I mean, <laughs> one of my favorites, which is, of course, we're always going to favor what was most recent, but there was a Volcane Cricket Nautical that Christie's uh, just sold in the in their you know online auction. They didn't have a live auction this month, and it was one on the Price is Right in 1965 which I didn't even know it went back that far. Uh, but um, it was, you know, all original, uh, original strap buckle, unpolished, it, it appears. And uh, I'm proud to say that's coming home. Uh, so I paid a lot more than I wanted to pay, but you can't find them like that. And uh, I'm excited about it. But, you know, in terms of something I went after and didn't get, again, of course, I don't want to copy Gabe's 1518 pink on pink but that was unbelievable there was actually a small cartier eight day clock that was in antiquorum geneva auction uh from the 1930s in 18 karat gold that i didn't get the chance to see it in person but i bid on it and got photos of it and it looked like the most incredible little clock uh i've ever seen brand new condition uh just very special the way the stand rolled out kind of like you know the way a store might have a a door that goes over it and rolls down essentially to to lock it down uh for the night um just unbelievable engineering and construction and preserved in that kind of original condition it's crazy charlie any favorite lots from you this year yeah i'm I'm guilty of, of wanting to copy uh, Gabe as well on the 1518 pink. That's a, that was a really special one, but I guess um, I really liked the uh, one of the most recent auctions, the Paddock Philippe reference 699-3 cosine Tiffany. This is the most beautiful pocket watch. I think it's got the American style or the linear calendar format. It's, it's beautiful. That was probably uh the watch that I, if I had $500,000 to uh, spend on a pocket watch, I would probably have tried to outbid that guy. But unfortunately I don't, I like seeing the coin watches. They're fun, but yeah, I think that paddock did it for me. One of the ones I had mentioned was also a paddock pocket watch. It was Al Capone's pocket watch that sold from his estate sale earlier this year for $230,000 or something like that. I thought his estate sale had a handful of, interesting watches that was the highlight but um felt like they didn't get enough attention maybe from others so that was one highlight for me but other than that there was the the two cartier pebbles actually that popped up at phillips and bottoms i thought it was fun to see two of them back to back 
both in yellow gold, both from Cartier London. There's supposedly only six of them that have been made in the larger size that both of those were. So it was fun to just see them and both perform well, both selling for something like $400,000. It's one of their, one of London's funkier case designs, I think. So, so that was a cool one. It was obviously a big year for, for Cartier all over the place at Monaco and otherwise, but those were Shout out to Tony Trena's article in Hodinkee about uh, Cartier. That's right. The Cartier crashes as well. Um, but you know, those are, those are too hot in the streets now, Eric, we've, we've moved on to the next, the next uh, of course, of and course. the next one after that. Yeah. Yeah. But right, I'm, so now, so that now, London, can I chime in for two seconds? That London crash at Southeast yeah. Geneva. I mean, I think that of course it went big, but there's, they're so rare that really should be a million dollar plus watch. And I'm sure whoever bought it will be rewarded in the future because, you know, it's one of the most iconic designs, certainly from Cartier. And there's none, basically none out there. They never come up for sale and there are so few made. Uh, I think it, I thought it would have hit a million for sure. Yeah, me too. And I, and I'm sure, honestly, I've had people ask since then that are probably willing to pay over a million, but like whoever bought that did well. Anything else we want to hit on auctions before we get a little more personal guys? Um, I just want to talk about the 5711 T. <laughs> I think we're <laughs> sick of that, <laughs> but um, the, uh, I did want to give a shout out to the auction houses in general. Obviously we talk a little bit of inside baseball in our previous episodes, but um incredible to see not just one auction house hit 200 million this year but two in watches phillips did 209 and christie's did 207 uh i i mean that's unbelievable if just six years ago it was really hard to hit 100 million honestly or you get right around there and uh the previous you know it was eight years ago i think christie's did 120 million then it kind of dipped down slightly but it's just Un, unreal you know given they're selling 1000 to 2000 lots per year total across all sales um it just shows the strength of the watch market uh and uh it's wonderful to see well with that i think the next thing we wanted to talk about was our favorite watch purchase of the year charlie we're going to start with you on this one yeah so um kind of hard i got a lot of watches this year so i guess like you know, some of the ones that stand out would be, you know, the Rowing Blazers Seiko Rally Diver was was a fun one. Um, that one's been a little bit on the road. I've uh, lent it to a few of my friends who were test driving it, so I haven't gotten to spend too much time on that. But more so in the vintage, um, the vintage categories, I, I really enjoyed my JLC two nine seven five. That one I've been wearing a lot as well. But uh, probably the the one that was the most surprising that I, I ended up liking a lot was. Uh, cricket 304001 and typically i don't necessarily like the kind of like uh second series second series cases that much um especially when they're chrome plated it's it's pretty hard to find a good example a lot of them are degraded and and chipping away and dials are super rough but this one was a a big surprise and i think the only other one that i've seen that's kind of as cool as this one belongs to uh uh, Christine, Eric's wife, she has a really good uh, version of the same reference, but hers is non-luminous. That's a, a killer one that definitely needs to get shown one day. But 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, they sound really good. I love them. And uh, it's a surprise that I actually am, am pretty content with the Chrome case. Eric, what about you? Favorite purchase of the year? Um, so uh, the the basically the Rolex 1016 Explorer that was um, stepped on by a bull in a gear bag from uh, that was won in the 1969 Calgary Stampede by Gary Lefeu. Um, that was just a crazy, crazy thing. I've got the ad behind me on my wall, but to get a watch that's actually featured in the ad that basically since it was stepped on, sat in a drawer the last 50 years and uh, it was shipped in a sock by Gary's ex-wife. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was uh, kind of crazy. I got it from uh, a friend uh, who does Flaneur watches in Colorado and he had chased that watch for years. He had been bugging Gary about it because he was involved in rodeo since he was a teenager. And uh, shout, out, shout out to my friend uh, Steve Bridges of Flaneur watches. Um, and just that was just a cool thing. And on a personal level, I got a spectacular gilt GMT master that uh, Christine basically wanted to give me for my 35th birthday that I had because I enjoyed it so much when I got it unpolished gilt GMT. So uh, that was kind of a gift from her and the kids to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's really, really special. Eric, I got to ask, did you keep the sock? And are you hoping to auction off the sock one day like Goldberger's uh, cheese knife one day? <laughs> the sock, um, Steve might have it, but uh, I he asked if I wanted it. I said that was okay. <laughs> he could keep the sock. But um, yeah, it's uh, it just was a really cool special watch. What about you, Tony? What was the, what was the special one that stood out? Oh, I don't know. I guess... If you go back in the Rescapement archives, one of the first things I ever wrote about was Universal Genève and the Nina Rent specifically. I knew about that watch and that brand before I knew what a Rolex was, what a Rolex Daytona was. And I acquired those just towards the end of the year here. Um, I'm about to turn 30, so much younger than Eric. Um, but that was kind <laughs> that of so 30th. much younger. <laughs> so that was kind of a 30th birthday present to finally be able to find uh, one of those in the type of condition that I wanted. Um, I got a few new watches as well. You know, I love the Tudor Black Bay 58 uh, Silver that I've been been wearing a lot. So maybe that on the modern side. But but that's me. What about you, Gabe? I've got to go with my Shapiro. It was uh, it was a great process of that. And it's just so particular to me and my personality and the things that I love. And it, and it came out incredibly. So um, that's definitely got to be my favorite one of the year. And then a close second has to be my 5513 Explorer Dial. Um, which it, it's just a watch I've always wanted. And I got lucky and got one for below market on it, you know, and slowly Eric's helping me get put, make it correct. So <laughs> that's a, that's an added bonus. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's between those two. I really haven't bought too, too many watches this year, um, which I'm kind of happy about. Um, you know, hopefully 2022, there'll be some, some large and interesting watches coming in. But um, so far, you know, I mean, it's, I've kind of been trimming my collection a little bit to the stuff that I really love and want to keep. Um, 
So I haven't been buying so much. So those two are my favorite for 2021. Next up, we are going to name our person of the year. Um, so kind of like Time Magazine, I guess, the significant lots people of the year. <laughs> Charlie, yeah. what about, I think, so the Time person of the year was Elon Musk. I think I saw that, right? So it's it'll be a huge honor, I think, for whoever is named person of the year by significant lots. So Charlie, uh, with that, who upon do you bestow this honor? I mean, can I name a few uh, shout outs to people personally or is it just for one are you guys gonna get mad at me one and then uh you know you can name as many honorable mentions as you like i suppose within reason it's tough um do uh let's do nia nia is a uh articles she's a standout i'd say and certainly uh look forward to all the stuff that she produces um I guess a few other people, uh, Ricardo, um, it was really, it was really, uh, cool watching him create the, my watch memoir app. So that was a, a very fun one to witness. And I got to discuss, um, that with him and, and, uh, Roman the other day on, um, fifth wrist, they just published, published that uh, episode. Um, I guess, yeah, even, even Alex and, and Roman from fifth wrist, Cole Pennington had some really cool video content with, uh, articles as well. Um, Logan is making a, a strong end of the year run for first place. I'm sure too. So we got about ten more days to see what's, <laughs> what's in his uh, back pocket to finish out the race. Then uh, Tanya Edwards as well. A lot of the articles of on collectability have been awesome reading and super informative. So I guess yeah, there's my uh, my crew of uh, people of the year. Eric, what about you? People of the year. Well, I thought it was person of the year. No, no, I'm just kidding. I, 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 would nominate, I would nominate Tony and Charlie, but I guess we should have a rule against nominating each other and Gabe too. Uh, but um, uh, I feel like Etienne of Baltic uh, really, he had a big year, you know, and, and Baltic was included in Only Watch the amount of collaborations he's doing that are really phenomenal, you know, whether it's the latest revolution or the perpetual ones in Dubai or all these other ones. I mean, it's, I can't say I know him that I've never met him in person. I've uh, messaged him a couple of times. We've exchanged, you know, friendly messages over the years. Uh, but it, it is really cool to see him build a brand of watches that are under a thousand at retail that, often are selling for $2,000, you know, or more on the secondhand market. Uh, and um, it's really good for watches that there are really cool, covetable watches in that, in that range, you know, and that's what, obviously what we tried to do at the Seiko uh, five sports uh, rowing blazers piece too. But if I had to name one, it'd be him, Peterman, Beda, my friends, uh, Mr. Peterman, Gail Peterman, and, Christian Beda, they're they're phenomenal, uh, and and also would would be honorable mentions for me. But you know, they had a big year last year too. So um, I think those are my brief mentions. Gabe, what about you? Has to be Prince Tufik of uh, Egypt. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knew? But- yeah, yeah, exactly. Who knew? But then uh, I'm going to go widespread honorable mention to uh, the independents. I, I think they, they're, I like overall what's coming out from those guys, you know, from the continuum, 
to uh to you know some of the stuff that our work's doing with uh that that new piece that i really like etc and my last honorable honorable mention will be to phillips and to christie's i mean monster monster years on on the business side um you know and i think my last one will be to tiffany just kidding yeah so (laughs) yeah yeah, those are are my awards yeah for the year Tony, wrap us up with yours. I agree with Eric on the Baltic point. You know, I endorse them with my wallet. I bought his micro rotor earlier this year. I think they're doing a lot of great things and they're vintage inspired, which is great as well. He had a comment in Revolution about how he wanted to get people into mechanical watches by making them affordable and all of that type of stuff because he had that same relationship with watches and his dad. So I think it's cool to have someone with that perspective and that type of design aesthetic as well that just makes great watches um but the person i was going to mention is is your friend and mine tyler the creator um i did a short stupid article on riskatement called him the riskatement collector of the year because you know he kind of went down this rabbit hole of cartier starting with the cartier crash which is fine um kind of riding that hype train i guess and fueling it as well but to see him show up at monaco snap a picture with john goldberger and then bid on a couple wild things there that are you know small probably ladies watches from cartier from you know the 30s and 40s that no one else really cares about and they're you know 10 to twenty thousand dollars is pretty cool and i think it's cool to have someone in the culture if you will that is this and to watch it is at such a nerdy level so so that was my my person of the year That's the last great. thing we had was predictions for 2022 so gabe was the one that mentioned that we should make some predictions pull out the crystal ball as we close out the year so gabe do you have any predictions for as we head into 2022 oh my i think i think prices are going to continue to run especially on uh brands like longa where we're just at the beginning um i i I think we're going to see a ton of pieces that we haven't seen come up for sale, come up for sale and, and really make some, some big, big, uh, big prices. I think the Indies are also going to come out with some really cool stuff in 2022. That'll get people even more into, into them. And, you know, they'll also trade for crazy numbers. Um, so that's sort of my continue. My prediction was a continuation of the trend that we've seen now. Um, I predict that Patek will put out another sports piece that will have everybody extremely excited. And that'll be exactly what it is. Um and it'll make the auction houses very happy. <laughs> but other than that, uh, you know, I think I think we're just going to see some more development off of what we've started building now uh, in 2020, 2021, which is more indies. Eric, crystal ball predictions for next year? Um, on a kind of watch specific side, it's I feel like Vintage Hoyer is getting its mojo back. So we'll see some you know, more activity, more pieces, nice pieces coming up to auction probably. And, and that's really great. Um, so, and more people just getting into it, of course, for the right reasons, because they love the watches and they're awesome, uh, rather than just trying to buy something to, to make money on a broader watch market perspective. I think we're going to see a lot more kind of M and a activity with, uh, 
with watch dealers, with watch retailers. There's all kinds of chatter about big retailers being bought, purchased by other retailers or a lot of things that could happen on that side, whether the secondhand, you know, emergent, I mean, this is public, but like Watchbox planning to open all these locations around the, around the world where you can go try on watches. Um, that's good for the watch market to have more people kind of little embassy points, if you will, or, <laughs> or at least consulates where you can go look at, at cool watches and more people get into it. So I think, um, you know, as long as the, the broader economy is good, you know, the, the Omicron apocalypse upon us uh, doesn't, I know, <laughs> cause massive shutdowns again and all these things. As long as the, the overall market stays strong and fine, I think we'll just see con- more continued growth in watches. Maybe the auction houses could reach $250 million in sales this coming year if, if things continue this way and they can source excellent watches for sale. Um, and, uh, I, I do think this whole business side of what's happening with the secondary market and retailers of watches will be very interesting. We'll see more consolidation roll up, uh, and, and it'll be very interesting to see how that affects the overall market. Charlie, any predictions for next year? Um, so I'm going to go on on a whim and say time only Audemars Piguet will, be uh, strong. And I guess the reasoning behind that is that, I mean, I don't think there's any evidence to back mine up right now, but the history is there. I mean, if we see people going crazy for time only Cartier, I mean, it's just as much, if not a better history from Audemars. I know complication specialists is what people really focus in on, but they have some really beautiful time only watches there. You know, they're a little bit smaller side typically, but you get a lot of, you know, value in terms of what you're getting is objectively rarer than some of the other brands. I don't know. I think that Audemars Piguet is, is where I put money on that we see a little bit of a increase in, in popularity. I could see that for, for sure happening. Also, as people look beyond the Royal Oak, of course, 2022 is a 50th anniversary. We're going to potentially see it ad nauseum in the coming months. But um, I think in general, there are arcs to being a collector uh, Charlie kind of started with the end game first, the time only <laughs> train rather than starting with chronographs and divers and then, you know, eventually making your way. Wow. These time only's are really beautiful. He just <laughs> started at the, at the final boss stage. But, um, uh, I would say that I'm seeing a lot of collectors who over the last decade collected GMTs and Daytonas and everything else kind of migrating to be very interested in these, you know, nearly unique time only watches, whether they're from AP or Rolex, obviously Patek Philippe, uh, uh, JLC, etc. Uh, Vacheron, um, finding really special examples, obviously, particularly in white metal, but in any metal is, uh, is very difficult. And they're really, really special and give you real emotion on the wrist. Uh, so I think you know, the other big trend we saw in Monaco were these early date chests, obviously going bananas, you know, 300K plus, which I was not expecting. But it cho- shows there's kind of a migration to o- earlier things in life beyond the Daytona GMT Master and Submariner. Well, thanks so much for joining us on our year end significant lots 
extravaganza. We'll see you again in 2021 or 2022, I should say. Thanks for joining us for our first few episodes here. And we can't wait to grow this thing in 2022. And I guess last uh, thing is, if you really are enjoying this podcast, let us know. Now, I think I would like to keep it up weekly. I think people, the public deserves to know what we think. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just created a website. Uh, we can publish that out in, a, in an Instagram page. And, you know, it's been really rewarding to be doing this now, episode six with you guys, <laughs> starting on a, on a whim. And it's been a lot of fun. So I'd uh, love to continue this uh with 52 more episodes next year no holidays awesome well thanks guys no holidays (laughs) yeah subscribe to the website leave us a review on apple give us all kinds of positive dms and we'll look forward to seeing you next year